Hello, and welcome to the In Session Podcast. I'm your host, Alan Etzler. I'm joined again today by Frederick News Post State House reporter, Samantha Hogan. Samantha, how are you doing? It's been a great week, a uh, busy week, so I'm excited to dive into several of these topics with you guys. It, it's starting to be a theme there. All the weeks are busy weeks in Annapolis, it seems. Well, when you have a schedule that essentially runs <laughs> Tuesday through Friday, and... I think people just try and cram as much as they can into 90 days and then try imagine doing that in a four-day work week. Yeah, yeah, that's that's brutal. And, and we had a uh, pretty uh, recently, uh, Wednesday maybe, I can't keep track of the days this week, but a pretty controversial bill came up that you covered the hearing for, um, and it involves uh, medically supervised injection centers, um, which are known by other names, um, depending on which lawmaker you talk to. But tell us a little bit about this bill and what it would do for, uh, for Maryland. Yeah, so just as you said, it comes by many different names. It's safe injection sites, uh, safe uh overdose prevention sites. Um, There's several different names, but essentially what it is is uh, that it allows people to use pre-acquired drugs um, within a medically supervised setting. And so it was actually on Thursday um, that the House and Senate both held um, nearly co-occurring bill hearings for SB 135 and HB uh, 139 which would authorize Maryland to establish six of these overdose and infectious disease prevention sites where people could bring drugs and self-administer them in the presence of healthcare professionals um, who could then medically intervene if they were to potentially overdose. Now, this uh, bill faces a huge uphill battle, um, not because it's never been introduced before, it has, but because it's a novel concept here in the U.S. Um, There are no centers in any state that currently allow this, though there are over 100 such sites in 11 um, other countries, including Canada. So there are some in North America. Um, there's been a lot of research done at these uh, sites, and actually we, we saw both the senator and the House representative that are sponsoring this bill show a video um, from uh, police officers um, that had spoken to individuals who had been actively using a site called Insight, um, in other countries and talking to them about drug use and why they visit this place and what their plans were for the future. And um, they're, you know, these are people in the throes of an addiction that might want to stop but physically can't because of the addictive qualities of some of these drugs that we're seeing, particularly with the opioid epidemic. Um, We're talking about heroin, mostly, or other very strong opioid um, medications. Um, Some of the initial um, studies that have been done around these sites have shown that there's no increase of crime, though um, because this is kind of a bold and uncharted territory, the bill does explicitly ban the development of these centers inside residentially zoned areas. So they're not going to be nearby houses. They're not going to prop up in your neighborhood. It's not a heroin den. It's not a crack house. What this is is a medically supervised um, place where people that are addicted and, you know, let's just be frank, are going to stay addicted um, until they are able to access a path to treatment can go and safe more safely use drugs. Um, however, I do want to point out that uh, U.S. Deputy Attorney General Rod uh, Rosenstein has come out very uh, strongly against uh, establishment of these kind of centers anywhere in the U.S. and has threatened aggressive action by the U.S. Department of Justice against any state that tries to pass a law or establish one of these places. Um, Still, interestingly enough, 
I only heard support for this bill um, at the bill hearing on Thursday. Usually we would either rotate or um, have all the um, people that are advocating on behalf of the bill, and then it would be followed by panels um, of individuals who oppose it, and they would outline their reasons for opposing. And there were none, um, at least on the Senate side. Um, I um, have checked in with our health reporter, Heather Mongilio, who I co-wrote this story with, and um, has some of that deeper science and medical background. Um, But, you know, we were hearing a lot of positives about opening this because it is such a terrible situation that a lot of people are facing. So we heard from advocates, we heard from nurses, we heard from doctors, friends, parents that had lost children and recovering drug addicts themselves. Um, One thing I personally wanted to point out was that there was a young gentleman um, from Frederick County. He grew up here and lives here still. And um, while he was attending the University of Maryland College Park, he found um, an unresponsive roommate inside their off-campus apartment bathroom. And he, when I asked him how that felt, he just said it was terrifying. There was absolutely no other word to describe um, finding someone that you care about um, unresponsive. And we're not talking about just undergraduates potentially partying and having fun. We're talking about someone that was pursuing a PhD. So this really is touching every um, socioeconomic background. Um, it's Like I said, it's a bill that's going to face an uphill hurdle, a uh, battle um, to try and uh, come to fruition. Um, locally, we have uh, Delegate Dan Cox, who is a, a registered Republican, um, saying publicly that these are heroin dens. So, you know, it's very easy to kind of flip the script on this. And there's a lot of emotion, I think, with this. But um, I will definitely be interested to see where this goes. Right. And, and you mentioned Insight. And, and they have um, the the Vancouver, Canada um, facility. And much of the research that has come back from from there has been all positive. Um, I, I don't think, uh, f- from my research, there's never been a fatal overdose at any of these facilities, uh, which is was, interesting. And that is what we also heard from Delegate Ken Kerr, right. who is a co-sponsor on this bill, along with uh, Delegate Karen Lewis-Young and Carol Krim. Um, as uh, as well as Senator Ron Young. So like I said, there, you know, there's a lot of support, but then there's also some pretty strong opposition. But yeah, I I don't know if facts will always prevail in this argument, (laughs) because there's so much emotion that comes into us, both from, you know, families and friends that have lost individuals who may have wanted to seek recovery and just either there weren't beds or their insurance didn't cover it or, you know, a slew of other things that stand in the way. And then also just people that relapse, you know, so being able to be in the presence of a medical professional, um, when you might not have control over your own actions, um, is potentially life-saving. And that's what I heard over and over. Right. And that's where I was trying to get to that is that all of the science seems to be pointing in the direction of these things, are a net benefit. And and so are, are you surprised at the reactions? Because if you look at our Facebook, I know you said nobody's down there. If you look at our Facebook comments, which you should never, ever do, but if you do, people are overwhelmingly kind of, kind of upset over this. And I think it's because when you look at it uh, just without the science behind it, it's, well, okay, people are coming here and they're doing illegal drugs. And on its face, that's counterintuitive, but there's, there is science that backs this. So, so are you surprised 
at what you saw in Annapolis? No, I'm, I'm really not surprised because for two years I was covering Thurmont and when I was there, um, they actually, the Frederick County Health Department um, wanted to come out and potentially start a, a needle exchange, a syringe exchange, because um, when you're talking about intravenous drug use, you're talking about so much more than the illegal activity of it. You're talking about... Um, you're talking about health because you're talking about increased risks of HIV um, and hepatitis. You're talking about wound care. I mean, that's what we heard nurses talking about is just that the infections that these people get. So, but I also heard, you know, just even the idea of giving people access to better health outcomes by simply changing the needle. I mean, there were, I, I've never seen so many people gather into the Thermont Town Hall. And, you know, people are willing to listen, but then at the same time, they have their own personal reservations. And you said not to read the comments. I, I did. I was scrolling through the comments <laughs> before this. And, you know, I, I saw someone say, well, why don't we just let natural selection pick off people? Wow. And I'm not sure that's the attitude we want to take towards our neighbors. Right, right. Um, I, I had, I do have one quick question. Has there been anybody down there to speak to who these selection sites are geared to? This is a conscious, a conscious choice of somebody who wants to get help. Is that correct? Or, or who, who not wants to get help, but wants to use in a safe environment and, and make sure that they'll be taken care of. There, there's no one being made to go to this. Do Are these things typically heavily visited? Has any of that research come out? Uh, I haven't personally week? seen it, but I, I can tell you some specific specifics in the bill. So this would allow only up to six of these uh, centers to be established in Maryland. There's an automatic sunset in the bill four years from now. So the legislature would have to definitely reevaluate this um, in four years, even if it did pass. Um, they are trying to spread the sites out so that two would be in urban centers, two would be in suburban areas, and two would be in rural areas, recognizing that this is a universal um, issue affecting many different classes of people. And then um, they would also um, not require any county um, health department to establish any kind of program like this. This is a very enabling, this is a very opt-in legislative uh, package. So, um, and it doesn't even have to be the county health center, that uh, health department that develops this program. It could be a hospital. It could be a clinic. It could be a federally recognized health center. It could be so many other things. It could be a community-based organization. There's like a list of probably eight or nine different um, groups of healthcare, uh, health-oriented groups that could um, choose to opt in and try and apply to establish one of these centers. So there's no mandates in this, um, but it does outline some of the services and care that should be provided to these individuals because really the goal is a pathway to treatment, which is what our health departments are already doing. You know, they, they do education on HIV and some of these other diseases that you can get from it. And I heard from other communities that have uh, wellness programs for pregnant women who um, are IV drug users before they get pregnant, um, become pregnant, and they're trying to get them on a path to treatment, uh, you know, while they're pregnant so that they don't give birth to a addicted 
child. And what they've seen very positive results coming out of that, of people continuing to seek that treatment. So I think that we have to think of these centers as a pathway to treatment, but it's not going to be, you know, handed down from the state that all, you know, 24 jurisdictions need to each then establish one of these centers. That's not what this is trying to do. Right. And it's also not providing funding. So for the people who are saying uh, our tax dollars are going to this that's not necessarily true unless no a actually they want to be able to bill to insurance for this which is a right. is a is a pretty interesting idea i was surprised to see that right um so we talked about the the health of people uh let's talk about the health of the earth really quickly um there was my specialty a envi- <laughs> right exactly our environmental reporter um a couple environmental bills came up uh last week and this week um first and, and kind of foremost um the styrofoam and single-use straw uh, ban bill, I guess. Um, tell us a little bit about this bill, or these two yeah, bills, so or separate it's bills. It's two bills. It's two bills, um, though definitely something that's easy to lump together in our mind, and I'll, I'll kind of explain why um, that is. So it's a misnomer to call it styrofoam. I think we should get that out of the way. Um, we are talking about Well, the- I'm not saying the other word. Polystyrene. It's polystyrene or plastic foam. Yeah, that's uh, that's I'll, what we. I'll say, I guess we should call it. I'll say it. plastic foam. I'll say plastic foam. Plastic foam. Good. You're going with the AP style version. Yeah. Um, yeah. I call it polystyrene because actually this isn't the first time I've confronted a uh, plastic foam ban. Um, when I was at college at American University, actually, I think I was like a freshman or a sophomore. I was covering for the Eagle, which is the student newspaper, um, our own on campus uh, styrofoam ban, if you will, um, where they were transitioning all the school eateries away from these white uh, fo- plastic foam containers, and they move to a biodegradable um, alternative. Um, they have um, a pretty robust composting program um, at the school and do contract for that. So that was a little bit easier transition for them. But what we're talking about now actually is a statewide um ban on restaurants, fast food places, uh, cafes, everyone, food trucks, everyone serving food, they wouldn't be able to use these plastic foam products anymore. They couldn't serve food in them. Um, And this is because it's considered an environmental risk. Um, It's also made out of petroleum products. So um, there are some climate questions that come into this. Um, And so they're definitely, um, Senator Cheryl Kagan um, from Montgomery County, who's sponsoring this bill, is definitely taking an environmental approach when it comes to it. And so um, you essentially wouldn't be able to walk out of a restaurant anymore with this kind of food container. Now, this does have some local ramifications. Um, We did speak with um, a few downtown uh, restaurants that definitely offer this as their carryout option. But then also Frederick County Public Schools currently buys um, foam trays. Uh, They have five compartments. They use them at the majority of their schools. And when they looked at an alternative product, they're looking at about a price increase of $50,000 dollars a year in order to do that now that's a drop in the bucket compared to their 12.9 million dollar operating budget overall but that also includes employees benefits pens pencils food um and all those other things that go into making you know a food service uh program works. So I think when I calculated it out, it was half of 1% of the entire budget. Um, But if you have significant cost increases in other areas, then this obviously no longer becomes just a drop in a bucket, it becomes a an expense that you have to wonder how to do how to deal with. 
some interesting things that the school system is trying to do is that um, in Middletown High School, at the Middletown High School, they have piloted a, um, a paper uh, five compartment tray option. It's um, more expensive than the foam trays. Um, and that's something that they've been working with in collaboration with the school administration. We've obviously seen um, Urbana High School and some of the Urbana feeder schools also um, working on food waste reduction. And they are probably evaluating their um, serving tools as well or how they're serving food to kids because um they have a potentially compostable yeah do you remember this day in the cafeteria we were there together um and they had a paper boat but it wasn't it wasn't really compostable because of the wax lining on it right yeah i do remember that yeah so you know it it becomes all these questions about how, how we serve food and then you know where that product goes at the end um does it go into the trash is it going to go into a compost program can it be recycled so um that's just something that's coming along just to touch on the plastic straws these are single-use plastic straws that you would get at a restaurant it's not banning it like styrofoam or polystyrene what this would be is that you as a customer would have to request the straw so instead of a server coming in slapping the waters down on the table and throwing a pile of straws down on the table you would have to say, can I have a straw? And I think the, the the motivation behind that is to give people pause and to think about what they're consuming. Overall, it's a very small portion of our municipal solid waste. But if we're, I mean, in Frederick County, we have issues with space in our landfill. We're uh, trucking the majority of our trash out of state into Pennsylvania. If that was ever to be closed as an option, we've got to start making serious, you know, changes to our our waste streams. So um, just some interesting things for people to think about, things that I definitely could nerd out for much longer on. Hmm. Well, if the single-use straw uh, bill does pass, I can tell you that will make one less uh, straw consumer in restaurants because there is nothing uh, that makes me feel more like a 12 year old than asking a waiter for a straw like I can't drink out of a regular cup out of a regular uh, glass you know and sometimes ice can be tricky sometimes it holds in the back of the glass and then you know rushes down and hits you in the face but you know it's a risk that we're all gonna have to take to maybe stop using straws <laughs> yes for sure um, there, there's also another environmental bill down there um, I'm not even gonna try to say the word of, of this pesticide that they are hoping to ban. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about it and the effect specifically that it's had locally? Yeah. So this one's a little bit more complicated than the other two, which, you know, might seem like, oh gosh, how far into the weeds are we going? But this, um, and forgive me if this is not how it's properly pronounced. I've heard it many different ways down in Annapolis, but chloropyphos, which is a pesticide that is used um, across the country and in Maryland, is uh, potentially um, something that lawmakers are looking at banning this year. This is a similar bill to what they had last year um, that did not ultimately pass. So um, just for a little bit of context, um, a pesticide label is approved at the federal level. And the EPA is in charge of setting tolerance levels, which is the amount that can be present on food or that people can be exposed to. And why this pesticide in particular is a problem is because there has been indications since at least 2011, um, if not earlier, that the tolerance levels that the EPA currently has on the books could um, potentially still have neurotoxic 
effects on small children and um, babies. So, because um, they're not able to metabolize it when they come in contact with it, either on food um, or through the environment. So this pesticide is banned inside for for all inside um, uses you can't use it in your household to to treat for bugs Um, really it's used heavily in agricultural um operations and one of them is right here in frederick county and it's um it's catoctin mountain orchard um his uh, the owner's name is uh robert black um he's very active he does our um fcps's uh apples um but he is not spraying this on fruit so i want to make that very very clear he actually applies it to his orchard around this time of year when there's no buds there's no flowers there's no fruit on the trees so he applies it specifically to kill uh, the peach tree boar, which is an insect that overwinters in the trunk of the tree. And if it's allowed to eat into the soft tissue inside the tree, it can kill the tree very, very rapidly. And so what he does is he soaks um, parts of the trunk um, in this pesticide so that he can kill those overwintering bugs. And there's also concern that the spotted lanternfly, which is a highly invasive and non-discriminate eater from Asia, um, there's concern that this might be one of the best tools to kill the egg masses that also overwinter on smooth surfaces such as the trunks of fruit trees. So he is advocating to be able to continue to use this and does not want to see the label um, for the pesticide locally revoked in Maryland. Um, And other farm trade organizations have also argued that if this pesticide were to be pulled from the shelves just in Maryland when everyone else federally would be allowed to use it, it's putting Maryland farmers at a competitive disadvantage. Now, this court, uh, there is a court case. It's very long. It dates back to 2007 um, because of those neurotoxic effects that I had been talking about earlier. That court case is not done. Um, actually, we might uh, see part of that come back up in March. Um, so I'm definitely going to have more details for you guys over the weekend on this ban. Um, it's complicated. It's very passionate on both sides. I know I told you guys when we were talking about the um, safe injection sites that there was no opposition. There was hours upon hours of uh, panels in objection and in support of this ban. So this is something that's also facing a huge uphill battle. And the the pesticide is only potentially harmful to people should it be like like should he have sprayed it on the fruit and a child then ate that fruit that is the way that it would be harmful or is it another way so like i said the epa sets tolerances so it's um it's 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 the residuals yes that would be on the fruit itself however there were advocates speaking on behalf of farm workers you know who also get exposed to this while they're you know spraying it when they're when they're applying it to you know vegetables and 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 other applications so Catoctin Mountain Orchard happens to just be using this on its fruit trees but there are other applications for this and actually it would also ban it as a seat a pre-treatment on seeds so I did speak to someone out on the eastern shore who um, has a, an agreement with a canning company and the canning company sets what seeds he gets to use and his seeds are treated with this pesticide before he receives them 
but he personally never comes in contact with them and no one at his operation comes in contact with them because they come in sealed bags which then get put into the planter machine which then go puts the seed into the ground so it be the exposure question i mean what we're really talking about is exposure risk in this case is exposure to this and so while adults seem to be able to metabolize it better than children and infants, you know, there are questions about, you know, what about pregnant farm workers becoming exposed to this and then passing it on to um, children in utero. So um, it, it's it's complicated quickly. Right, right. Um, I don't have a transition for this as good as the one I had earlier. Well, I felt pretty good about it. But uh, let's move on to roads and transportation because I know our county executive, Jan Gardner, was down in Annapolis today advocating for some transportation priorities. If you've driven in Frederick County even for a half an hour, you can probably guess which road she was down there advocating most for. But uh, can you tell our listeners? Yeah, so, and we've heard this before from me um, because it's been something that's been pretty obvious since uh, the election, and that is that the county's top priority, and it's shared by the state delegation, which is that Frederick County needs to be able to widen US 15 um, through the city of Frederick. And there's a lot of road construction there already, so you might be saying, aren't we already doing this? Um, but no, it's something that really has stalled, and it's something that we could actually be waiting more than a decade to actually open lanes on i just found out today um so what this is is it essentially would add a additional lane in each direction on us 15 through the city of frederick by building in towards the median um it would essentially uh, remove some of that bottleneck and get cars moving um, more effectively um they are also also looking at um, several other safety mechanisms by changing the way that people um, merge or turn across traffic so that you're not at risk of like T-boning another car. You would uh, sideswipe them instead. And, you know, no one wants to sideswipe another car, but that actually is a lot safer. So there's a lot of dynamics that go, or there's a lot of details that go into this US 15 expansion. Um, but it's, stayed at the county's at the top of the county's priority list because if money is freed up um they are hoping that that could that timeline for finishing it could be bumped up earlier than 2030 um the the thing to consider though is that it's estimated to be a 180 million dollar project so we're not talking about us uh you know a small cost um the uh, the city potentially has the ability to knock off about 10 million dollars off the project by doing some earlier stormwater uh remediations through local stream restorations i don't have a ton of information on that but i do know that the city has been actively pursuing um stream restorations um but then outside of 15, we're also, they are moving forward with um, some ramp improvements on US 340, um, which would um, essentially lengthen um, and improve the acceleration areas in both directions um, between Brunswick and Jefferson on some of those really short um, entrance ramps um, where people, where there's been con- some consistent crashes. So really they're looking at safety for a majority of their projects. Um, they also talked about the Mark train service and 
the only thing that they changed, uh, the only thing that the state delegation changed was they downgraded um, a priority to build a new platform for the Mark train at Point of Rocks because uh, CSX, um, which is the train company that runs the tracks, um, wants uh, the county to build a, a pedestrian skywalk, which essentially is um, a, you've seen them, it's a staircase, and then it's a hallway mm-hmm. that goes over the tracks, followed by another staircase. And it essentially, as Ken, uh, Delegate Ken Kerr said, it turns a very affordable project into something that's uh, too ex- not feasible. It's So they've downgraded their project for that, but they are trying to increase service um, for Mark into Frederick and kind of incentivize people using it um, and, you know, working in D.C. because they want those rides between um, Point of Rocks and Brunswick and uh, Union Station down in Washington, D.C. And you'll have a story on this in tomorrow's paper, but but I was, I was reading uh, today and there was an interesting approach to 15, which is probably a bad approach, uh, it sounds like. But can you tell me a little bit about what they were planning to do in terms of that widening of 15 and kind of breaking it into what seemed like two separate projects? Yeah, so, you know, um, the the transportation manager for the county kind of alluded to the fact that because it's such a large uh, dollar amount to do this project and all just all the different elements that go into it, there was some talk at some point about doing it in two phases and, you know, widening one section and then later widening another. The issue with that, he said, is that you just move the bottleneck a mile down the road. And I think anyone that drives that area would agree you know the the car the, the number of cars doesn't peel off in the middle of the city of frederick it um it's pretty it's pretty heavily congested through that whole stretch right and, and while um our county executive jan gardner was down there she was also advocating uh for more paratransit funding from the state can you sort of tell me where that stands and what that argument has been uh, maybe not argument, but what her points have been. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this is something that um, County Executive Jan Gardner is very interested. Paratransit services is for our seniors and um, disabled uh, residents. And what it does is it provides them medical, tri- uh, well, trips to doctor's appointments, to pick up prescriptions, and to go to the grocery store. So what they have to do is call and request these rides. And Frederick County has seen such an increase in the volume of calls and requests for trips that it has had to stop has to, has had to start denying some of these trips and this has been something that's been very um, important for her because our senior population is going up but Frederick County is currently absorbing 70% of the cost of providing this service while the state's funding for it has remained flat and it's about 30% of the the total cost of providing these trips. Um, I was interested to hear that this is an issue that has um, appeared in multiple counties, um, Anne Arundel County, Charles County, and other regional transportation systems all came here saying, yes, we need more funding. Federal funding has been maxed out. State funding appears to have been maxed out. And these counties are having to shoulder an increasing cost and an increasing number of riders. And this has become an issue because um, I we've seen County Executive Jan Gardner elevate um, senior issues um, in the county by, you know, not just making it well, she brought it under the office of the county executive, I'm pretty sure, as an actual department. So she's trying to look, look out for seniors. Um, she personally um, 
has has an in, invested interest in dialysis patients. She, you know, likes to say that she gets um, dialysis patients um, before every blizzard and every storm to the dialysis center to make sure that, you know, they'll make it through because we're talking about a very life-threatening medical situation where your your body's not um, removing toxins from itself. So this has just become her issue. And uh, Delegate Carol Krim is uh, backing her up. And what instead of asking for money this year, they're asking for a study on how they can recuperate some of the non-emergency medical um, transportation costs um, from medical providers in the county um, and what those mechanisms would be and how best to assess who should be helping to pay for this. Would, would dialysis ca- uh, qualify as a non-emergency? It is technically like a non-emergency medical situation because it's not like you're in the throes of a heart attack. You're not in an ambulance going Have to they- a hospital. Uh- but I mean, we're talking about chronic conditions for these people. Right, and right. Yeah. So chronic versus emergency, I think, is where you, you how you kind of got to do the cognitive line. I'll, I'll be curious to see where this goes, because I think maybe the impetus of this study is, is to take on medical providers of, of dialysis because it is such an expensive uh condition to to have to live with we're talking um, about people going three times a week needing a ride there and back just to to get adequate dialysis treatment yeah but there has been some resistance um of them chipping in okay that'll that'll be interesting to see to see where that goes uh quickly we we have two more bills uh to to talk about um one will be uh senator huff's uh, board of education candidate disclosure bill he wants uh candidates who will be appointed to boards of education specifically to be named. This is, as most people here will, will guess, because of what we saw uh, after the election when Delegate Ken Kerr uh, became Delegate Ken Kerr and left the Board of Education. So can you tell us a little bit about where that stands and, and what you think will happen with that? Yeah, so this is no smoke and mirrors. Uh, Senator Michael Huff is being very, very honest and straightforward about this. This is stemming directly from the Frederick County um, situation that we watched unfold over the last couple of months, which was that um, Delegate Ken Kerr was elected to his first term to the House of Delegates. He had been sitting on the Board of Education. He resigned, and that spot needed that vacancy needed to be filled. And so um, the county executive and the county council agreed on a process that then was argued by some not to be truly transparent. Um, the county executive declined to release the names of the individuals who had applied and that who she was interviewing. All we got to hear was the name at the end of the person that she had selected. And so um, there was concerns about whether the best candidate had been selected, whether there was any politics that was involved in this. So where um, our Board of Education members would usually have to run a public campaign, this individual individual was quote unquote uh, picked behind a closed door. So um, there's many different methods that uh, everyone is kind of willing to potentially pursue, but um, Senator Michael Huff decided to introduce this bill on behalf of Phil, uh, Councilman Phil Dacey. And so essentially what it would do is require statewide for any candidate or anyone that applies to be a member of a board of education for that information to not be um, exempt from public disclosure under the Maryland Public Information Act. So this would require, you know, like this would not be shielded as a personnel record. So it would essentially make those lists of those names available. Um, 
I got some pushback from County Executive Jan Gardner. I got some pushback from Council President MC Keeganair. They're not positive why this hadn't been pursued locally first um, and why immediately they were jumping to a state level solution. Um, Senator Michael Huff just told me that it was, you know, this is should just be how it is. Like, this is a transparency. This is a good governance thing. And I kind of see both sides of the argument. It is interesting that it snowballed this week into just a huge state level question. Um, but... It, it, I, I can also see the merits of it. You know, we I think we would have, as a paper, loved to have known the full list of names. Yeah, I think that absolutely would have done a service to our readers. Yeah, and so, and then the only other bill that I really wanted to give people a, a catch up on was that uh, Delegate Ken Kerr's uh, first uh, bill um, had a much smoother ride than uh, the one that we were just talking about. Um, and actually, it's, it has passed both chambers um, at this point, and that is uh, the Maryland School uh, for the Deaf. Uh, state employees um, now um, are recognized as state employees. And um, if they were to uh, be disciplined in any way, they would have an appeals process put um, in place. And they would it's no different than any other public school teacher um, in Maryland. Um, this was non-controversial. I think a couple episodes back, uh, we clued you in on a, a funny little... Um, antidote from appropriations when he finished presenting his bill he sat back and he's like i'll take any questions and everyone's hands went up um, but they were they were pranking him so um (laughs) this truly proved to be a non-controversial bill the uh school for the deaf has already been essentially acting as if this is already in place this is just codifying it in law uh senator ron young had the cross file in the senate that also has passed um on both sides it passed unanimously so i think we can expect a signature on this one all right that sounds good uh, good for uh delegate kerr for passing his uh getting his first bill passed um what are we looking forward to next week? Oh, my goodness. I wasn't prepared. One minute. Let me pull the <laughs> calendar out. So I haven't looked at the full um, hearing schedule yet for next week, but I do believe, let me not misspeak. Ah, yes. So we'll be back in Annapolis with the um, Emergency Commission on 6th uh, District uh, gerrymandering. Um, so we'll be back there with both of our uh, two Frederick County individuals that are representing us there. Um, it's also President's Day. On Monday, so and then um, oh, do they, do they Huff, do anything in Annapolis for that? I'm not positive if they do anything for President's Day. I guess I'll have to double check. Um, on Monday, um, they're actually all the alcohol bills are going to be heard, and I know that Delegate Carol Krim will be doing that. So President's Day might just be me listening to a lot of arcane liquor laws at the state house. <laughs> so that's one way to celebrate, right? And Absolutely. then. And then on Friday, a uh, Thursday, sorry, uh, Senator Michael Huff is going to have at least one of his handgun bills in front of the uh, Senate Judici- uh, Judicial Proceedings Committee. So um, I will have to go back uh, and relook at that bill and um, definitely follow up. Um, I, I, if people remember, he has a few non-controversial ones, and he has one that would really <laughs> change um, Maryland from a right to uh, what what's it called, um, may issue to a right-to-carry state. So we'll have some follow-up on that for sure. All right. Well, that sounds great. Samantha, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, have a good weekend. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week.